Father, we are grateful for an opportunity to gather. That I uh, hear even doing that in, in a digital way, they just feel so, even for me, right now, disjointed from uh, what would be preferable. Uh, that you have, um, that you've been meeting with us over the past year in these uh, digitally mediated spaces. And so we pray that you do it again. That through prayer, through reading and hearing scripture, through studying and teaching on it, that we might together receive a more full, broad picture of what it means that you are our king. And we pray. Amen. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes in the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered them, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Jesus, after his betrayal and arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane and his subsequent trial before the religious council, now stands before the Roman governor Pilate. Under questioning, he confirms the same truth that he declared to the high priest. He is the king. End of the conversation. The mic drops, so to speak. Tonight, as we gather together to read and reflect on Mark 15 and the death of Jesus, the question that propels us through this story is this. If Jesus is king, what sort of king is he? And how is his kingdom inaugurated? How does his reign come about? 2,000 years ago, Jesus was clothed, crowned, paraded, lifted up, and enthroned as king. But what we see on Good Friday is the scandal like no other. He's the crucified king. This plan, put into place from the very heart of the God of love, Father, Son, and Spirit, all working together as the Son entered into the darkest parts of humanity's story. And more than just entering into them, he also allows these things to enter into him. The battle for the kingdom takes place not on a bloody field, but on a bloody cross. His defeat of death came by letting death defeat him. On Good Friday, our king was enthroned. Mark 15, beginning in verse 6. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was one man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief, chief priests had delivered him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, what evil has he done? But they shouted out all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. Having scourged Jesus, he delivered him over to be crucified. Jesus was blameless. This all was one giant miscarriage of justice. Sure, this rabbi from Nazareth was making some grandiose claims, but he hadn't done anything truly wrong. 
But Pilate standing here, what could he do? Incite a riot over one man? Luckily, Pilate thought that there was this long-running tradition allowing the people to free one prisoner each Passover weekend. Perhaps by setting Jesus against the worst of the worst, he could ensure this innocent man's freedom. And so Pilate gathered them together. On Pilate's left stood Barabbas, this criminal committed to overturning society and taking everything for himself. On Pilate's right, Jesus of Nazareth, the king committed to establishing his kingdom and giving all of himself. Even with the odds seemingly stacked in Jesus's favor, the crowd could not be stayed, swayed. The decision had been made. The shackles slid off Barabbas's wrists and his feet. He smiled as he ran his fingers over the skin bruised from their grasp. He looked over at his substitute, his fate now sealed. The electric chair, the guillotine, drawn and quartered, crucifixion, whatever it was, it wasn't for him anymore. It was for that poor sucker from Nazareth. As Romans 5 puts it, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. On Good Friday, we acknowledge that we are both the crowd and the criminal. We are the ones who hand Jesus over to death through our rejection of him as God and king. And at the same time, we are the crowd. We are the ones rejecting. We are Judas. We are Peter. And at the same time, we are the criminal. We are not just the ones who reject Jesus, but the ones who have been set free as he is chained. The scandalous exchange of a rebellious prisoners for the righteous one. And so at this point tonight, I'm just going to invite everyone to take a moment of silence and prayer and confession before God. To acknowledge the ways that we are both the crowd and the criminal. We both come with a prayer of repentance and forgiveness for our participation in sin and our rejection of Jesus as king. And we also come in a prayer of confessing our enslavement, our, our being bound like Barabbas to sin's power. And so just take a moment to pray, forgive me, to pray, save me, before we continue on. And so let's take a moment of that now before we keep moving. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! They were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. The blameless criminal king was led away from the Roman guard, scourged as the guards repeatedly whipped bits of glass, metal, and bone into his body. Alongside this, he was stripped naked, standing vulnerable, ashamed, 
in a frame. The Roman guards adorned him in this cape of, of royal colors, kneeling before him. They set this crown upon his head, all of this in this abusive mockery, this, this bullying. By simultaneously, underneath all of this, they are pointing to the unseen reality of this moment. The king is being readied for his big moment. And here as this is happening, what's, what's happening is the shame, the fear, the evil, the abuse, the anger. Uh, this darkness that resides not just within our world, but we find within ourselves. The things that not only we have done, but what's been done to us. Jesus bore it all. Not only the battalions 2,000 years ago, but all of ours today. You see, here on Good Friday, Jesus stands like this all-open door to all of our sorrow, all of our suffering, all of our guilt, despair, and, and horror. He receives our abuse directed at him, and he stands with us as the abused. Everything that keeps us awake at night, both that which we have done and that's what's been done to us. The shameful, bloody king looks to humanity and says, me too. Everything that cannot be escaped, he turns to meet it and he claims it as his own. This is mine now, the king says. And he embraces it with all that is in him. Each dark act, each dripping memory, as if it were something precious, as if it were a child tottering into their father's arms. But looking over human history and our own stories, there's just so much of it. So many injured children so many locked rooms, so many bombs in public places, so much vicious zeal, so many bored teenagers at roadblocks, so many drunk girls at parties that someone thought they could have a little fun with, so many tear-soaked pillows, so many school shootings, so many jokes that go too far, so many babies torn from their mother's arms, so many lingering lustful looks, so many empty bottles, so much lonely anger, so much self-obsessed religion, so many mass graves, so much world-ruining greed, so much sick ingenuity, so much bruised and burned skin, so much pain, so much evil, so much suffering, guilt, fear, and shame. On Good Friday, the world the king claims claims him. It locks him around and drags him down. On this Friday, Jesus turns his bruised, bloodied face towards you and me in this moment and accepts everything we have done to others and everything others have done to us. The door of his heart is wedged open wide and in rushes this whole venomous flood, the vile and churning tides of cruelties and failures and secrets. Let me take that from you, the king pleads. Why don't you give it to me instead and let me carry it? Let me carry you, all of you. I am big enough, and I, I'm wide enough. I am not what you were told. I am the friend who will never leave you. I am the light your shame cannot extinguish. I am the bread broken for you. I am the blood poured out for you. I'm the door where you thought there was only a wall. I am the shepherd rescuing my flock. I am change and hope. 
and possibility. I am what comes after deserving. I am gift without cost. I am the way God so loved the world. I am the truth that you are more loved than you dared believe. I am the life you never thought possible. I am, I am, I am. Before the foundations of the world, I am. Mark 15, verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. This inauguration parade arrives to the place of the skull. The centurion guard again strips Jesus naked, vulnerable, ashamed before the crowd, and they bring him to his cross. As he has laid down on this piece of wood, the hands that fed the hungry and healed the sick are pierced and pinned. The feet that carried the good news of the arrival of the kingdom of God, the feet that walked on water, that were washed by Mary Magdalene too, are, are driven through and pinned to the tree. The little boy held up by his mother in that manger that first Christmas 33 years ago is now hoisted up where all can see, lifted up with two criminals to his right, and left, Mark tell us. Just a few chapters earlier, two of Jesus' followers, James and John, came to Jesus with a request. When you are in your glory, let us sit alongside you, one on your right and the other on the left. Jesus' response to the disciples is those two spots are set apart for someone else. And here at the place of the skull, Jesus is lifted up. And on his right and left are not James and John or Moses and Elijah, no prime minister and secretary of defense. It's two criminals. The inference here is the cross is his moment of glory. His enthronement is his crucifixion. His throne is his cross. In a world where glory looks like Herculean shows of strength or the intellectual wisdom of the philosophers or Caesar's impressive political exploits or the Jewish zealots' violent defeat of their enemies or the celebrity and stardom of our day and age, Good Friday shows us that true glory, the glory of the king, the glory displayed here is not in strength but weakness. Not in the world's wisdom, but apparent foolishness. Not in stardom or popularity, but shame and dishonor. Not military and political endeavors, but a servant's posture. And not the violent defeat of one's enemies, but violently being defeated by them. All of this, as the Apostle Paul would later write, was the very power and wisdom of God. Here the king enthroned on his cross. The kingdom planned. The defeat of our great enemy so that we might be saved. This, in some upside-down kingdom, is where our king is enthroned in his glory. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, 
He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. The cross is assumed as a religious symbol, seen regularly in jewelry, tattoos, shirts, bumper stickers, and held as the symbol of Christianity. And though, yes, this is absolutely the sign of Christianity, our modern world and, and modern church has done much to disinfect the cross of its excruciating reality. In fact, our word, English, excruciating, comes to us, is rooted in the word crucifixion. Crucifixion was set apart for the despised, not fit to live, not even human, as the Romans put it. Ancient Jewish historian Josephus called crucifixion the most wretched of deaths. Ancient philosopher Cicero pleaded with Roman citizens not to speak of such a disgraceful subject as the cross. The Romans viewed this state-sanctioned execution tool, the cross, as a parody, as a mock enthronement, an exaltation of a king of fools, as they put it. The cross was not just death, but degradation dehumanization. It was a form of advertisement. This person is the scum of the earth, not fit to live, more of an insect than a human. The crucified wretch pinned up like some sort of specimen in a museum, not even of the same species. It was utilized thousands of times in the generations surrounding Jesus. Though Jesus is unique in history, the way he died is not unique. Countless historians tell us of the regular use of Rome's uh, crucifixion tool alongside the years leading up to Jesus' own death and following. We have representation without history where in the decades following when Jerusalem would be sacked by Rome, Rome crucified 500 Jews a day. The poor soul left dangling there like an animal. And what many have referred to as the closest consideration and and comparison that we have with American history is that as we look at the cross, we are looking at an ancient Palestinian lynching. The way people treat people who they deem as not people. And this evil is not some ancient reality, but the beastly subhuman nature of how we treat one another. Those whose lives and souls and personhood we sinfully, wrongfully label as less than. The lynchings of the American South, the gas chambers of Auschwitz, Stalin's gulag, the killing fields of Cambodia, the abortion clinics of our modern world, the bullying and suicide of LGBTQ teens, of immigrants at our southern border, of black men on a Minneapolis street or while jogging in Georgia, of Asian American women in Atlanta, of children in Orange, California. This is what we do to those who are not human. The cross stands as a symbol of the darkest proclivities of the human heart. And the supreme irony here on Good Friday is that in the midst of this laughing stock, this enthronement of a king of fools, that it's actually here that the ruler of the universe is being installed. He is being treated as less than human so that he might make us fully human again. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, 
Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. The whole point of crucifixion was to label an individual as forsaken by humanity. And like I said a moment ago, he is not one of us. But this was not the final step of Jesus's enthronement as the darkness fell over the land. This darkness, a symbol throughout the scriptures, a symbol of God's judgment. And as this darkness comes over, the king cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Crying out in Aramaic, the opening words of Psalm 22, it's fitting that this man who understood his entire life and mission through the lens of the story of God in the Hebrew scriptures would now end his life once again with those sacred words on his lips. Psalm 22 is worth your own contemplation this evening, but to just summarize some of it and read it here. Psalm 22, written by King David, is the prayer of the God-forsaken. When after asking, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalm continues, I cry day by day, but you do not answer me. By night, but I find no rest. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melted within my breast. My strength dried up, laid in the dust of death. They have pierced my hands and feet. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, casting lots for my clothing. All who see me mock me. They say, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. The experience of the God forsaken is not only that of Jesus on the cross or of David in writing Psalm 22, but at some point or another, every human who has lived in a world mired in sin and evil, both within and without at some point in your life where you are left with no other recourse than to cry out and say, God, you've forsaken me. You are far from me. Yeah, maybe you created everything. You wound up this crazy universe, but you're no longer here. You're not genuinely invested in me and with me. You are no longer with us. You have left me to my own devices and my destruction. On the cross, God in Jesus enters into the experience of God forsakenness in some paradox within the triune God that far too often is sought to be simply answered in simple ways. But in the midst of this mystery, what is clear is that Jesus enters the experience. God the Son, in some sense, experiences God forsakenness. The king of creation enters into creation's exiled state of isolation and confusion and darkness and death, where all of us are at some point or another in our lives, all while pointing to the ending of Psalm 22. For those of us with ears to hear his trust in God for coming vindication, yet all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of all the nations shall worship before you, the kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. You see, the king was God forsaken, so his promise may be true when he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. 
and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. After that cry of both dereliction and hope, the king exhales his last. Shuddering nerves, struggling for breath, the tears, they all stop as his body now hangs from the cross. The air is still. The king is dead, abused, mocked, ashamed, marred, forsaken by man, forsaken by God. He has now drank the cup. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And upon his death, two simultaneously miraculous events occur as a result. The first Mark tells us is the tearing of the curtain in the temple, torn from top to bottom, heaven down to earth, rendered not by human hands, but from the very heart of God himself. At the center of the temple stood the Holy of Holies, separated from the rest of the world by this giant curtain. And within this holiest place, God's presence dwelled with Israel. It was where heaven and earth met. It was the place of the kingdom of God. And it was where for one day a year by one individual, the high priest, the Garden of Eden was encountered again. And so this tearing of the curtain was God's confirmation of all Jesus had spent the past week announcing. This temple is, stands judged and condemned for its leadership's failure. And now here on Friday, after their execution of God himself and Jesus, the curtain is torn. The temple has fallen. God has left the building. But at the same time, it's not just judgment, but revelation in the tearing of the curtain. The veil is no longer needed. Because in Jesus' death on the cross, God's presence and glory, the overlap of heaven and earth, the kingdom of God, the Garden of Eden, has now become manifest. God has left the building. What was hidden behind the veil for generations has now been set before the world on a Roman cross. The curtain has been torn. The kingdom has arrived in the crucifixion of Jesus. And this kingdom is no longer set apart for Israel alone, but back to Psalm 22, for all the families of all the nations. Which brings us to the second miraculous event in the wake of the crucified and enthroned king. Standing by the cross, witnessing the death of this righteous, innocent king, this Roman centurion makes the history-splitting declaration, truly this man was the son of God. As a Roman, and especially as a centurion, as a, as a member of the military, Son of God was wrapped up in his political, theological grid and worldview. Caesar was the Son of God, this ruling, divine, human king. And here our centurion now makes this beautifully treasonous decree that no human in Mark's gospel has made up to this point. This is the Son of God. This is the true king of the world. The climax of the story, not just of, of Mark 15, but of Mark's gospel, the human declaration of the identity of humanity's true king comes from the very individual who hours ago mocked, beat, crucified, and killed him. Good Friday looks you and I in the eyes and screams at the top of its lungs from the top of the place of the skull. There is no one too far for the son of God from the true king's reach. It's not a matter of what you have or haven't done, but whether you join in with the centurion and the billions throughout history to declare 
truly this man was the son of God. This is our true king. Before we get carried away, is the centurion's decree too little too late? Son of God, true king or not, he's dead. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Here we find at the foot of the cross, three uh, named and many other women who we're told have been with Jesus through it all, following him, his disciples, even financially supporting his ministry over the past three years. The rest of all the male disciples are all off hiding since the Garden of Gethsemane or in Peter's case, after his three rejections. Yet here stand these faithful women, closer than the rest, as witnesses to the story. Everything you and I have just read tonight was because they were there. Like these courageous women, we find another individual who shows up late, at least in Mark's telling, to the story. Joseph of Arimathea, this rich member of the council who requests for the body of Jesus not to be left like the thousands of crucified people before and after Jesus to be picked over by crows. His request is granted. He has the corpse of the king prepared, set into his own family tomb. And as the giant stone rolls into place, those faithful disciples, those women, watch as our story, story seemingly comes to a close. It's over. The king is dead. The movement has ended. It was fun while it lasted, but it's over now. How are you feeling about your life if you're one of these women? There was this dream and hope given by Jesus about another sort of world and life possible, one shaped by the arrival of the kingdom of God, of healing and forgiveness and justice, possibility and joy. But that dream, along with its herald and king, now lays dead in Joseph's tomb. He could save others, but he couldn't save himself. The creeping darkness of reality washes over them. Here, they receive those stark wake-up call of how the world really works. Death, injustice, darkness, loss, pain, abuse, religious corruption, and political violence, where might makes right, where people redefine good and evil for them and their tribe, where humans treat each other worse than any other living thing on planet Earth. Chimpanzees didn't invent the cross. To be a human, this 
is how life is, and this is how the world is. And with that stone locking into place, it's a loud sound that reverberates and sets these disciples in their place. It was fun while it lasted, but that's not how the world really is. But what if, just what if there is a power stronger than death? And what if there is a king and kingdom greater than the vile tides of humanity and our corruption? What if there is a love stronger than death? What if? This is the question which drives us through this weekend towards Sunday. And so as we move into the rest of this evening, into Holy Saturday, before gathering again on Sunday uh, from Common Book of Prayer, closing prayer for Good Friday. Almighty Father, who gave your only Son to die for our sins and to rise for our justification, give us grace so to put away the leaven of malice and wickedness, that we may always serve you in pureness of living and truth. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Go in peace. We'll see you Sunday morning.